Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I am David Clement. Uh, Yael is out this week gallivanting the hills of Italy. Um, Lucky him. Uh, But this week I am joined by none other than Bill Wirtz coming to us from the land of tulips, windmills, and legal sex work. Uh, Bill, how's it going? Uh, It's going great. I think this week I am actually indeed the second best to choose from. (laughs) There we go. There we go. Insider joke right there. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So you've had a lot going on uh, recently. Um, A writing machine, um, if I do say so. Um, I want to start on... One of the op-eds you published about environmental groups in Europe and links to Russian funding, some pretty shady stuff. Um, So explain to our listeners what's going on there, because um, I think for North American listeners, there's a pretty good understanding of like Russian influence in um, the right wing or fringe right wing side of politics. That's kind of been well well documented and explained, um, but you had a bit of a different look, and so walk our listeners through what you uh, what you've observed. So um, it started. People started being interested in this topic when former NATO Secretary General Rasmussen um, laid out that there was Russian influence uh, by funding environmentalist groups, and at that point, nobody really thought that that was. Uh, you know, it seemed a bit outlandish. Like, why would Putin fund your local environmentalist group? And then, of course, you draw the conclusion that, well, I mean, if uh, th- th- those environmentalist groups, they advocate against using nuclear power, they advocate in Europe against using fracking, um, modern agriculture, and incidentally, all the things that are affected by these um, uh, policy proposals end up majoritively favoring Russian trade and, and actually European dependency on uh, on Russia. And uh, there's a few things that are outlined in the article that people can go read for themselves. It goes from uh, environmentalist organizations sitting on the board of Gazprom-funded foundations. Those same organization initially against Russian pipelines now suddenly in favor. We'll call that coincidence. Uh, a, a, a federal minister in, in Belgium, she's still actually uh, energy minister today. She's from the Green Party there. And she previously worked at a law firm and uh, one of the biggest clients there was Gazprom. Um, and so there's a, there's a few examples uh, that I lay out there. And uh, another one, by the way, was that uh, that I own that I didn't just focus on sort of the left wing environmentalist groups. There's also examples on the right. So Marine Le Pen in France, uh, most people know her. Uh, she argued against uh, uh, a large set of insecticides that are used in agriculture in Europe and and, and in the United States and North America all across. And um, and that ban uh, that France actually ended up implementing, that she argued for very heavily, uh, affected sugar beet farming in France and actually led to the point where sugar beet had to be imported into France. France is an exporter usually of sugar beet, now had to import it. And uh, one of the largest sugar beet uh, exporters uh, uh, to Europe uh, is Russia. And so there again, you can call it an odd coincidence that it affects the exact products that Russia is interested in trading with Europe. Um, 
but I think it goes a bit further than that. And, and sort of the, the, un, the, 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 the influence there is quite interesting because you wouldn't really assume uh, a, a green group to be funded by Russia, but there's definitely interests there to be, uh, to be analyzed. I have one funny follow-up question for you. What is a sugar beet? Sugar beet. Well, I mean, um, well, you have either sugar beet or sugar cane. Um, sugar okay. cane usually uh, is from more in in, in South America, uh, and sort of where it's where it's warmer, you can get sugar cane. And sugar beet is sort of the old way in which we used to do sugar before we, uh, let's say diplomatically, discovered new areas around the world. Yeah. Okay. Understood. Understood. Um, so, has there been much response? I mean, was this well known prior to you? kind of talking about it do you think there'll be an emerging discussion on this um because obviously what's happening in ukraine has has highlighted um the need to reconsider relations with um with russia and with industries that are either state-owned or by another name state-owned um do you think that this could start a conversation in regards to who's advocating uh, what on behalf of 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 the Russians? Um, I don't know if that will really need like lead to a large analysis, but I definitely didn't reinvent the wheel here by discovering this. Uh, this has been in the news for a while. I know that Fox News also reporting on this uh, uh, a couple of years ago. It should definitely be in the news because it's now more up to date than ever. Now that we talk about where do we get our energy from and Europe really being behind. And even though France has said that they're building new nuclear power plants, that's going to take a while to actually have an impact until those are built and until those actually have uh, are operating. So it should be in the news. And I think it's particularly ironic that the type of organizations that usually try and find dark money everywhere um, are actually the ones uh, that perceived what is sort of the darkest money there. I, 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 uh, I, I said on Instagram today, um, Greenpeace more like red war and uh, and if you wanted to fund the war machine uh, you do it with energy and i think that's the realization obviously that we have in europe now that we are funding the war machine by by importing russian energy we're trying to get out of it but for years everybody was lobbying for the governments to get out of any type of uh, local production there's uh, no shale gas any local natural gas extraction was 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 phased out in europe we were, were completely reliant and especially countries that that sort of decide within the EU, such as such as Germany. Yeah, there was a there was a funny tweet from one of our colleagues. It was Europe will spend months struggling to uh, de-link itself from Russian gas, but don't worry, guys, they have their priorities straight. They're going to ban Apple from using the Lightning charger. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's un unfortunately that seems to be. Uh, of course, there's different departments within the commission, and they all have their different. But I mean, it, it, I, I got this from somebody who used to work in the European Commission, and, and I think this is probably true across the board in many in many jurisdictions around the world and government. Uh, who told me that look, if I wanted to get up the ladder in sort of the bureaucracy and sort of the hierarchy here in the commission. I need to make legislation. I need to suggest to ban something, to regulate something. Nobody gives you an award for setting something free. That's just, that's not the time anymore. Now everybody wants you. And the more you create, the better. And so this creates this influx of an obsession to, to regulate things. And it takes the eyes off the important matters. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I find that across the board with a lot of legislators. It's like, you know that it's actually okay to do nothing. 
<laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it's a bit like the Belgium, you know, didn't have a didn't have a government uh, for for quite a long time, and also Spain didn't have a government for about a year, uh, a few years ago, and then the economy grew in the meantime. Turns out you don't actually need the government <laughs> to grow the economy. Uh, I loved I loved that statistic. It's like Spain in chaos, and it's like actually the chaos turned out to be better than whatever preceded it. Um, yeah, uh, okay, this is, I mean, interesting stuff on 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 Russia. We've talked about that um, quite a bit on, on our show and, and Ukraine. Um, in regards to some of the other things that you've been working on, um, what else is, I, I know you've, you've written frequently about the bees, um, the bee-pocalypse. Um, so, I mean... Is there a bee apocalypse? Are we losing the bees? Because obviously we all know the the bees are quite important. Oh, where to start? Um, I mean, <laughs> this has been this is this has been quite a like it, this has been in the news for, for for such a long time. If you Google bee apocalypse, bee uh, bee deaths, uh, you see bee killing pesticides, you see all these things, and then all it takes is going to the FAO website. This is the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, and you look up the statistics on you know how are the bees doing, and oh, the worldwide bee populations are increasing. So how is this possible? Like how is it possible that I get the impression from the news that the bees are dying and that well this is essentially going to destroy our entire ecosystem um when that's actually not true well i mean ultimately it comes down to people uh not willing to say mea culpa not willing to say my bad i got that wrong in the early 2000s there were uh bee colony uh, uh decreases uh especially in the united states um those can happen if bees get specific diseases but also if managed bees uh, decline. So, I mean, m- most of the bees that we can count are managed bees. And if there's a decline in the need for beeswax or honey, well, then the beekeepers have less bees. Now, if you count the number, um, then, well, ultimately, yes, you do end up with a decline. But that tells you very little about your ecosystem that has very little to do. And, and it, the conclusion that that was caused by GMOs and pesticides and so on is, is completely ridiculous and has been has been disproven. Um, and then you know they do the same thing with wild bees and that gets complicated because I mean it's a wild bee how do you count it? Um, so there's a lot of these things that that, that keep that keep happening. Um, and well, it's ultimately the bottom line of many of these environmentalist organizations because well the headline the bees are doing fine that doesn't get you donations. Can you imagine the job of being a wild bee counter? <laughs> and you're just like, oh, there's one. Oh, did I say that one already? I don't. I well, that's don't know. that's how you end up operating with with models, and then of course, then you know, if you were a researcher that in the past has predicted an, a drastic decline in bees, and now you're tasked with creating a model that predicts sort of what are the, what is the wild bee population going to be in the future. Well, you sort of incentivized to, you know, produce a model that will say, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really tough to do this. I mean, it's the same with the insect apocalypse, right? I mean, there's, it's really hard to create a model that, that counts this. How are you going to do kinda that? Seems, it kind of seems like, like a, a comparison would be someone claiming that, that the salmon stock is down, but using the numbers from farmed salmon 
to say that the the salmon stock is down and therefore we're doing something to kill wild salmon and it's like well oh, they're two unrelated things exactly and and you know we can we, we will be able I, I can predict to you already now that in two years from now we could do the exact opposite hysteria we could make like a alfred hitchcock with the birds kind of uh, a, a scenario it's like the bees are attacking bee numbers are exploding because right now the 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 honey prices are increasing. So what managed bee like managed beekeepers are going to do is increase their stock of bees. So if I look at the statistics, they're going to explode. And then what I'm going to be able to say is, well, we have too many bees. They're all going to attack our local populations. They're moving back into our cities, and the bees are going to take over. I mean, sounds like you know, a real you... real bee apocalypse. <laughs> it's, a, it's going to be a bad Nicolas Cage movie, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I like Nicholas. I'm one of like four people in the world who actually enjoys Nicolas Cage movies. But did, did you see? Me. Did you see the unbearable weight of massive talent? I thought that was a good movie. It's it's no. Nick Cage really making fun of himself. If you, oh, yeah, if you haven't, haven't seen, seen it, I much recommended. <laughs> that's good. Oh, that's good. Yeah, an actor who will take what seems to be any role. <laughs> um, okay, so Bee Apocalypse not happening. Uh, we've chatted about Russia. Um, we've got two minutes here before we'll go to the break. You sent me something interesting about viewership changes. Um, essentially some data coming out that if Fox News viewers were incentivized to watch CNN, um, their views politically shifted. Um, what, what happened there? Like, how much did they shift? How long were people watching CNN versus Fox News? So I don't know exactly what they gave people as an incentive to do it. Maybe they paid them or something. But in any way, the 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 the, the group they used uh, was watching CNN intensively, and and those were the regular consumers of Fox News. And what they then analyzed is sort of how was you know one one of the big data points was based on how they they see the president. So at that point, Donald Trump. This is from a, you know obviously this has been taking quite a while, um, and um, and and they, they you do actually do see shifting views and 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 something interesting for instance is the assumption that if Donald Trump did something bad, Fox News would discuss it. That's that was the assumption in most of the people that they used for this um, for this experiment, and that shifted quite significantly once they started. Uh, watching CNN because they they saw the things that were not being covered on 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 Fox News, and what is also interesting though um, the favorability rates of the of the people who participated in the ex- this experiment the favorability rate of CNN did not increase by those people watching CNN so they took it as sort of like well this is still not my favorite channel but I like the information I'm getting. <laughs> We'll have to dive into that uh, when we come back from the break. Um, Bill, you'll be on the other side here, uh, so stay tuned for that. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. I am joined uh, by my trusty colleague, Bill Wirtz, uh, coming to us from Amsterdam. Um, Now, we were just chatting about viewership and views uh, for... um, for CNN versus Fox News and the views of people who were essentially incentivized to watch CNN over Fox, do you think it would go the other way too? Where so, like an avid watcher of CNN, if they were incentivized to watch Fox and Tucker Carlson, do you think maybe like their views would change? They probably still think negatively about Fox, but then their like overall political viewpoint would change as well. I, I actually, yeah, I'm very convinced that would be that would be the case. As somebody who watches both, 
um, you know, being able to get that on my on my Fire Stick, being able to watch these different American channels, I I, I see that despite having annoyance with some of the hosts, you know, especially on the opinion shows on either network, be it MSNBC, CNN, Fox, um, I still get information that I otherwise wouldn't have gotten on the other channel. And, you know, there's this, I think as a, as a media consumer, you always end up appreciating additional information because, well, I mean, if it's true, then you will want to know it. I mean, ultimately, we are very curious as consumers and we want to know as much as possible. And if you package it in an interesting fashion, and I mean, they've really mastered that. I mean, there's no European channel that, presents the news quite like the Americans. Um, everything is breaking all the time and everything is the most shocking thing possible. I, I, it's, it's, it's really like watching TV. I've watched TV shows a lot more boring than the news in the States. So I think, I think people would be, uh, yeah, I think, I think people still wouldn't like Tucker Carlson. And I think that's ultimately what we saw in this research. Um, but I think they would get information that they didn't get on MSNBC or CNN. And I mean, that's good. I mean, diversifying your media intake is great. Yes. Yeah, actually, that is a very good point. I do enjoy uh, the Canadian media space isn't the, like for television and news, is a lot less uh, sensational than um, than the U.S. And one could argue that U.S. politics consumes too much of Canadian news. Um, we've certainly seen that with our prime minister who appears to be creating government policy based on what's going on in the U.S., the the Roe v. Wade draft leak, he was tweeting about it, and then um, gun legislation in response to the mass shooting in Texas. And it, uh, it's starting to get a little irritating. Um, is it the same in Europe where a lot of, like, news coverage is consumed by what's going on in the U.S. I mean, that was probably more so true during Trump than Biden because the Trump presidency was just, everything was on fire all the time. But I'm not sure if, did European media go that route where um, what Trump did or said became like the news story of the day? I mean, yeah, I mean, the specifically outrageous things, yes. Uh, if it's too much in an, in an American context to understand, then they usually don't cover it. I mean, the U.S. is still covered within the uh, foreign policy um, or like uh, news from, from the world kind of segments. Uh, it, it's covered a lot, but it, it doesn't really um, influence the narrative as much usually because we as Europeans are so self-centered that we think we've solved all the problems already, even though, and we don't want to get into the nitty gritty of it. But I mean, even though you take the, the latest debates, um, there's a lot of European countries with gun laws that are uh, less strict than many places in the US and abortion laws in Europe are often much stricter than what the US has right now. And if you really go into the policy of it, uh, you'll find out that there's significantly uh, different things happening in Europe and the US than you would expect. Uh, but of course, it's not covered in that way. And it has no, well, it, it doesn't influence that much. I think the last thing that really did influence um, was uh, was George Floyd. Uh, so that incident really had repercussions in, in Europe as well, because that is the same sort of the, the law enforcement, the powers of law enforcement that was heavily mediatized and also had repercussions in Europe and protests and so on. But it's rather rare because people still see themselves in a very different context. You, you gave our listeners a, uh, an interesting tidbit of information where in Europe our firearm laws may be more uh, open than in some places in the United States. Well, as far as I understand, it's really hard to carry a firearm in a city like New York, where, I mean, 
was it 3.5% of the US population lives in lives in New York City. Um, uh, if you go to the Czech Republic, I mean, there's, uh, as far as I know, there's about 25,000 people um, who already have an, a concealed carry license in the Czech Republic. So you can carry your, your firearms. Uh, you can't take them to a bar. So that's why you see in a city like Prague, you'll see these bars with a sticker. I thought it was a joke initially when I first went there. But it was actually like a handgun is crossed out. It's like, okay, well, who would carry a handgun? And there's actually a lot of people who do. I met a lawyer in Prague who, who carries his firearm every day. And in court, he just takes it off and puts it in a locker and then gets it back. So, so that exists in Europe. And I mean, as soon as you go in sort of the rural areas where people go hunting there's a lot of firearms uh, possession and that is that is uh, allowed by people having a hunting license a sports uh, license there's a lot more firearms in europe than 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 you'd think and especially if you go into the balkans you know when when war was rather recent a lot of firearms end up in, in possession and the the laws are also sort of gray where you don't know exactly well can you can you still have this is this is this uh, is this memorabilia is this still a firearm does it still work i mean also oversight is 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 not as large uh, because well we don't have as much of a police state as uh, as the americans tend to have so um yeah i think i think if people really analyze these things and didn't go into them with in, into it with preconceived notions they'll see that eh, it's not all the way it's cut out to be interesting interesting i don't think most north americans would know that because uh especially on the left a lot of North Americans will, and you see this specifically with Scandinavian countries, because they'll be like, oh, we just need to be more like Sweden. And it's like, okay, so like no centralized national health care system, no minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, oh, no, no, we didn't mean that part. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I mean, that's some, some good information. Um, Another, I mean, you see that part of the coin as well, though, David. I'm sure. I mean, the, the Americans talking about the Canadian healthcare system. As you, as somebody who actually uses it, I'm, I'm sure you have your own stories and views on what people don't know about the Canadian healthcare. Oh yeah, I mean, um, I mean, the, the greatest example that I have personally is I needed sinus surgery, and so the time from when the doctor, the special, so the time from going to my family doctor to seeing the specialist was like four months and the time from seeing the specialist to have surgery was like nine months so when they went to book the surgery they were like okay well are you available in nine months on the third wednesday of that week and it's like i don't know i guess (laughs) like it's so far away uh I mean, luckily, it's it's wasn't debilitating. It's nothing like in, insanely serious that would like seriously limit my ability to work or quality of life. But um, there are certainly a lot. There's a lot of things in the Canadian healthcare system that uh, Americans who advocate for Canadian-style healthcare would want to avoid. Um, and it's funny because the flip side of that is people who make that comment in Canada get accused of wanting. U.S. style healthcare, when in reality all we want is European style healthcare, <laughs> which is you have a strong public option which is appropriately funded, but you also have uh, the the private sector filling gaps. There are availability. You can pay to use other services, which is all illegal here for the most part. Um, 
I guess that, I mean that's another good topic. The reality of of healthcare systems in Europe. Um, I know that there are some examples of of the Netherlands or Germany um, or in, in Scandinavian countries where there are viable private options. Is that common? Are they rare? Are they used? What type of services are they traditionally used for? So, so what, what is definitely true is that the private sector is quite developed in Europe. You will always have complementary health insurance. I have complementary health insurance myself um, uh, or people who have not just complementary but like just parallel private insurance next to whatever the, the, the public system is. This is particularly true in Germany where a lot of people have private insurance because, well, you wait a very long time for surgery or a doctor if you just uh, public. Actually, uh, in Germany, there's the sentence... Um, uh, 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 what is it, Kasse or Privat or something, something. The Germans always, the, the doctors ask this question, uh, private or public, when you walk in. And if you say public, you're going to be waiting a long time. And, and that's the reality in Germany. Now, in the Netherlands, for instance, you have a system where, I mean, the government doesn't run healthcare uh, um, at all. So you have these private companies and you have these websites that compare. And so you, you come to the Netherlands and you sign up and then you have these choices and it says, well, these hospitals will be covered and these won't. And you will need complementary insurance if you don't have it. In Switzerland, it's the same system. You have like 65 different companies that people choose from. And then you have countries that are very, very controlled by the government. And France is one of them. My home country, Luxembourg, is one of them. Now in Luxembourg, it works because we have like uh, we have a lot of immigration and uh, high-paid uh, immigrants, you know, highly skilled people, and that sort of makes it that no matter how much money you lose, you'll still, you know, raise it in taxes anyway. But a lot of people are just not aware how expensive it actually is. You know, like I have Americans complaining to me about their their healthcare uh, insurance costs, and then I look at my own because as a freelancer, I I do wire my social security every month myself, and I see the cost, and I'm like, well, that's not in that's not very different. And I'm a healthy person. I don't need a doctor very often. You know, and I had I have this analysis now for my stomach they need to do. They put a tube down your throat. I mean, you, you, you've, probably, you've probably done. I mean, all of us will have to do this thing at one point and uh, in, during our lives. And I, I try to get an appointment in November and they tell me July. And me knowing the Luxembourgish healthcare system, I am asking which year. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because... <laughs> I mean, November to July. I mean, how many people are getting their stomach analyzed? It's crazy. So, I mean, that's uh, so that's that, that that's that's really that's really a problem. It's like, what quality do you actually get? And the thing is, our rich people, they don't get treated in the public-run uh, hospitals. They go to the Mayo Clinic in the U.S. And that's the reality. It's like if you want good healthcare, you go to countries where it's more free. And and that's, is there is there yeah. a decent amount of inter Europe shopping for healthcare? Because there are, I mean, there are Canadians who go to the U.S. Um, in the tens and tens of thousands each year for a lot of this stuff. I think, uh, I think the city with the most MRI machines per capita is a small city uh, in in Michigan, across from from. Uh, from Ontario, which is weird, and, and everyone's like, "This doesn't make sense," and it's like, "Oh no, it, it makes a lot of sense." Those are that's the Canadians driving across the border to get an MRI quicker than four months, um, and so is there a lot of inter-Europe shopping in that regard? Where oh, absolutely, yeah. oh, so much of it. I mean, so many cases that I've seen, people don't get their surgeries; they go across the border. I mean, if he's from a small country, that makes it easy. Acquaintance of mine um, uh, almost cut his thumb. 
I mean, so his thumb was hanging by a thread because he closed the car door on it. Ooh. And I mean, it's gruesome. Mm-hmm. It's very gruesome. So he has this he has this thumb and he wants it sewn back on. And he goes to the, this is in France and he goes to the hospital and they say, like, well, no, we'll have to just take it off. Sorry, you're losing your thumb. And he's like, well, I'm not willing to accept that. Puts his thumb on ice and it, uh, it takes a takes the car, a friend of him drives him all the way to a private clinic in Germany and he gets it put back on. I mean, and that's 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 the reality in Europe. I mean, people, there's a lot of health tourism in Turkey as well. Everything from hair implants I... to sur- all the surgeries, all the surgical stuff, they go to Turkey for me. It's, it, yeah. it, it's hilarious. It's like, I, I, I know that my hairline is thinning because I just get bombarded with these Turkish hair replacement ads on social <laughs> media. It's so depressing. It's like, how do you Dude, guys I have a know? Very em- <laughs> I have a very embarrassing admission, actually. When I started traveling to Turkey for the first time, I saw all these people, and you know, I've, I've never thought about. I mean, in my in my family, nobody ever had those treatments to get hair implants, so I've never seen this in person. I see these guys, and their their, their head is very red because that's from the you know initially. And I'm I'm in Istanbul airport, and I'm like, this must be. And then they're also in groups together, and like four or five with this. It's like, oh, this must be some kind of cult or something. I don't know what these people are praying to. It's a very specific ritual. And it's all the people. They fly from all over the world to Turkey and they get their hair. And uh, and, yeah, I, well, that's how I, I I'd out. love to get a testimonial from someone at some point to see if, like, long term that actually works. Like, if these men just have, like, full heads of hair. Um, I have no idea. I, I, I don't know many people who've tried it. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but it is booming. Well, let's it see. It is booming. Um, <laughs> you'll, you'll, I'll see you eventually at Istanbul Airport with a with a with a red head. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, we got to cut to break, um, but we'll be right back with our guest, Bill Wirtz. back on Consumer Choice Radio. Um, I am David Clement, joined by Bill Wirtz, coming to us from Amsterdam. Um, We were just talking Turkish hair replacement. I mean, we've covered a lot of topics uh, today, from Russian Russian funding of of environmentalist efforts to healthcare tourism in Europe and Turkish the bees aren't dying. The bees are not dying. The bees are not dying. That's an important takeaway. Um, What else uh, have you been working on, or what else is in the pipeline? What what's grinding your gears these days? Oh, so I was actually uh, I'm working on a piece about targeted advertising that I think is actually not so bad. There's a lot of bad news about targeted ads. And, you know, you open your Instagram, your Facebook, your Twitter, and you have these ads and they say, oh, this is based on something that I was researching earlier. And I'm saying, like, why are we reminiscent of the past here? You know, it used to be that we switch on the TV and childless people would get ads for um, for, for for diapers. And if you um, if you lived in, in, in Vermont, you would uh, I mean, like. I gave this example. I said, if you lived in Vermont, your TV channel also didn't show you surfing gear. And if you live in Florida, your TV also wouldn't show you uh, ski equipment. And so targeting is not new. It's just that we perfected this by having more data and making your ad experience actually better because now you get things that you actually might be interested in as opposed to showing you a bunch of stuff uh, that, that 
you know, that you even might buy, but just because you've seen it so often. I mean, like the entire criticism of commercials, uh, I think is misguided if it's directed towards um, targeted advertising now. I think targeted ads are much better than what we used to have. Yeah, uh, and this is a conversation I've had um, locally here where people will say, oh, I mean, the targeted ads, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, well... Yeah, I can understand why someone would be like, oh, well, I'm getting a lot of ads for X because it's assuming this. But you have to assume, like, the way things used to be is essentially the billboard way of advertising. And depending on what you're selling, one, it could be a giant waste of money, right? How many eyes, if you're a pizza place in Oakville um, and your option is to put up a billboard on the highway. Well, how many how many eyes that see that billboard is your restaurant um, applicable for, right? It's in the right geographic area. And then you filter that down to small businesses, right? Local businesses who use online advertising through social media and things like that to advertise based on location and age and all of those preferences. I mean, it's a huge disservice for them because you're basically dumping them into the same bucket as the big companies who do have product offerings, let's say, across a province or across a country. And how does a mom-and-pop chain of, of Italian food restaurants compete against an international or, or national chain? So there's a lot of, like, whatever the inconveniences that people make up in their mind, um, there's a lot of benefits in terms of the efficiency of advertising for small businesses and getting their message out um, to people. And, I mean, I, I always joke, it's like, oh, well, wow, they really know me very well. It's like, <laughs> they maybe maybe the algorithm's seen my hairline transition over pictures, <laughs> and that's where the <laughs> Turkish ads are coming from. But at the same time, I do get a lot of cool stuff for things that I'm genuinely interested in, like, when a company has a sale on golf clubs or the, the, the shirt manufacturer for the, the golf shirts or dress shirts that I like has a sale. It's like, I actually enjoy seeing that stuff. That makes a lot I of mean, sense. My, 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 most of my ads now are craft beer and modern cat litter boxes. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I guess, I guess the internet knows I have a cat. I think I publicized that. And now you get, I get these ads for these machines that you do the cat litter themselves. I'm not going to buy that. I don't think it's necessary to have. But, like, I mean, at least I'm more interested in that, in that sort of content. What you said about small business is absolutely right. I mean, if you... If you, the people, it's interesting, the people who are against targeted ads, also the same people that usually would say that, you know, a lot of large companies control most of the market. It's like, well, I mean, give the, the small businesses a fighting chance by allowing them to advertise in the cheapest way that we ever yeah. made available and yeah. the best way with to the most reach ROI. the consumers. Yeah, with the exactly. most return I mean, on investment. The ones that can't buy a page in the New York Times, the ones that can't afford uh, the TV advertising times, they can afford... Uh, on a small budget, just targeting the very niche people that, you know, that service their product and grow their business from there. And, you know, look, I, for, 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 while researching this piece, I was researching uh, books on Amazon about people who think targeted advertising is bad. Now, guess what kind of ads I get on Amazon now? Well, I get ads for books 
about why targeted advertising is bad. So it seems to me that the people who are writing books about this also benefit from the algorithm detecting that I've previously researched them. Maybe they should consider taking their content off these platforms if they're really so adamantly uh, against targeted advertising. I love it. That's kind of like uh, that's like when AOC was ridiculing Uber and then someone went through her congressional receipts and saw that she had invoiced like $2,000 worth of Uber rides. And it's like, oh yeah, Uber really is that bad that you took it for like six months straight and your staff and all that jazz it's that's the irony there is uh is pretty thick absolutely i mean it's it's uh it's uh, as a famous economist once said uh i'm on your side but you're not <laughs> i, like I mean it's it's really I like, like a lot that. of that's these good. services <laughs> everything from uber to a lot of these new technologies it helps uh, minority groups. It helps uh, small businesses against big businesses. It's like, we're on your side, but you're not. Oh, that's good. That's good. I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, anything else in the works? Anything else in the works? I mean, you're, for those who have not come across Bill's writing, he uh, is traditionally uh, a writing machine. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you were to quantify how many pieces you've published with an external outlet, um, what do you think that would be? I mean, it's got to be pretty high. I mean, so in a usual week, I, I've started uh, about a year and a half ago to do weekends. Uh, but uh, yeah, a usual week, it's it's five pieces. I try to write a piece every day. And then, I mean, the pitching process then takes a while, you know, arguing with editors over what to change here and there and then the occasional holiday. So it doesn't go up to... to, to to 365 but i mean i do try and to be in the 250 pieces a year that's sort of what i'm trying to aim for get the word out now some of them are it can be a bit repetitive because eventually you need to make your point in in, in separate fashions because well as we've learned for people to get a point you need to say it multiple times and uh, and uh, and yeah so that's what i'm trying to do now it's uh, but i mean you're also very prolific you you write in the biggest newspapers that canada has to offer so i mean you you know can't play myself like up here compared to you you you're a big shot in canada well, it's always good to have a guest on who uh, who will pump your tires for you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, oh, you're welcome. Our, our listeners cannot see, but my head has grown three sizes. So um, appreciate <laughs> appreciate that. Um, I, I got a random I got a random question for you. Um, what is and this is really out of left field here, either from Luxembourg or where you are now. I mean you. Uh, you are, in many senses, the traditional European who has traveled a lot of Europe. Um, what is the perception of Canadians? How how are Canadians viewed in Europe? Because I, I mean, there's an old joke, uh, which used to be very true, uh, and anecdotally I know it to be true, of Americans putting uh, Canadian flags on their backpacks as they did their travel through Europe um, and getting better treatment. Um, and I, I've seen that to be true in, in real time. Um, but it, how are Canadians perceived abroad in Europe? Well, the interesting thing is that Canadians are just as apologetic. They try not to, uh, they try to make it clear because you ask people and, you know, 
the accents are not as apparent to us Europeans, like the differences no. in the accents. No. So we would say like, oh, are you from the United States? And they say, no, 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 absolutely not. And then because in their head, they have all the news. I mean, that's what you said earlier, right? I mean, Canadians consume so much US news and because the news is also bad and, and they don't realize that we as Europeans, we don't consume as much as to what's happening in the US. They're very apologetic. No, 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 no I'm not American. I'm, I'm Canadian. And then, well, I mean, most Europeans, I mean, we, we look at the map and then above the US, we think it's just ice. And then they say, oh, no, there's a, there's a country. Um, and then, I mean, there's, uh, I mean, there's, there's, I think if you looked at the Google Analytics, I think a lot more interest comes uh, towards, uh, in Europe comes towards Cam- Canada during the Winter Olympics. Because that's yes. when we see the real skill of the Canadians. <laughs> the bobsledding and hockey and, yes. and whatever all the sports are. That's where we see the, the real skills and then of course the big names I mean anyone from like Céline Dion and then Trudeau is of course uh, popular in Europe as well because he Trudeau really like he um, uh, I, I can't talk too much about the politics but I mean he he, tr- he does this European thing I mean everything from the clothing to the style to the social media presence it tries to be very it's very Europeanized in that sense um, it's following a style. I mean, that's why when they take pictures together with Macron and, and the, the Prime Minister of Luxembourg and so yes. on, it's like, oh, these guys all dress similarly. He, they he have f- this style. He fits in. He fits in. And that, you know what? It's funny. That's, it's, that's, uh, that's not just a comment about him in Europe. That's also a comment about him in the U.S. Uh, the Wall Street Journal just published an editorial. So this, I think this was the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal said, Trudeau should just get on with it, quit being prime minister and run for Congress if he's that interested, <laughs> because he's he's very much in in the like Beto O'Rourke like crowd of 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 the Democrats. Um, so that I mean that's interesting to 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 see that maybe and he wouldn't and he wouldn't be the first uh, person with a foreign passport to be uh, to be, become member of Congress because it looks like I mean did you see this Dr. Oz won his primary in, in Pennsylvania and he has Turkish uh, citizenship uh, he, he yes absolutely he immigrated from uh, from Turkey I don't know exactly when but it's actually pronounced Uz if you want to say it correctly and uh, um, I think uh, yeah I mean I'm not sure is there a Muslim member of, uh, of of Congress right now. I'm not entirely sure, yes, but yes, there are uh, there are a couple. But he uh, would probably Democrats. be the first Republican uh, yes, uh, to be I, to be Muslim and from having a Turkish passport. I think he may be the first Republican to ever win a primary, like to win a to win to be the name on the ballot, because that's what he's done um, right now. Is he's he will be the Republican candidate against whoever the Democrats put up. So I think he's, he's broken that glass ceiling for the, on the Republican side just by getting to the general election. If he wins, then I think it will obviously be another milestone. There are a couple Democrats um, who, who are Muslim, um, but I don't believe there's been anyone on the Republican side. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, what a strange, what a strange thing that it's like, I don't know. My opinions on Dr. Oz is he spent a lot of time talking about weird stuff on TV and then got called in for a congressional hearing where he basically had to discredit himself and be like, no, 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 this wasn't medical advice. I'm just like shooting the breeze. (laughs) And it's like, okay, now this guy could be a congressman. Is this good? Is it bad? I... I don't know. I mean, it's it's. We started. We, we talked about this earlier. It's it's taking 
a lot of the things that are on TV with a grain of salt. And that the guy who runs a who runs a show where he they call himself Doctor Anything and they talk about everything from the news of the day to some obscure medical issues. It's taking these things with a grain of salt. You know, if you need if you need actual medical help, WebMD is just going to tell you that you died about three weeks ago. So just see an actual <laughs> doctor. And you'll go, figure out yeah, what's go wrong. go see a practicing physician. Um, oh, that's good. Uh, we don't have too much time left, but I mean, it, real quick, about forty five seconds. Is there any of of that type of celebrity trend in European politics where celebrities? pivot from whatever they used to do and become members of European Parliament or national legislatures? Uh, not as much. I mean, you do get the occasional celebrity, but usually it's because, well, in many countries, it's, you know, the bit like the Trudeau system is like the, the father was already in politics and, and famous and or prime minister and so on. And then the, the kids have a better chance. And since we have so little time left, I still wanted to advertise, uh, do listen to the consumer podcast if yes, you're interested that's... in hearing more from me. Wherever you're listening to right now, you can also get the consumer podcast that's spelled with EU. Yes, I do. I was actually, that was going to be the way I was going to close. The Consumer Podcast ranked one of Europe's top 10 political podcasts hosted by our guest, Bill Wirtz. Uh, Bill, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. It has been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.